Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. I know most people listening to this podcast are on a mobile device, but I want you to take a moment to visit theeverydayinnovator.com where you'll find two valuable things. First, that page provides an organized list of all 146 episodes I've recorded to date. You can find topics that match your current needs as a product manager and where you are in your career growth. Second, and I'm really proud of this, is a free download for you. The top 100 insights from the first 100 plus interviews. I briefly summarized 10 of the most important tools, techniques, and advice from the first 100 plus episodes, and it's yours. Just go to theeverydayinnovator.com and you can download it at the top of the page. Now, design is increasingly an aspect of product management, not just product teams. More of us are familiar with user experience and its impact on design, but where does design really begin? Every true user experience expert I've talked with about this has the same answer. And that's with the user of the product or the person with the problem that we wish to solve with a product. How we actually get insights from users can be the difference between product success and failure. To explore the right way to get insights, I talk with Brian Baker at the First User Group, which is a strategic innovation firm providing business strategy and cutting-edge product design in digital, consumer electronics, and consumer packaged goods. He has delivered over 100 products to brands that we would all recognize, and likely products that we've encountered one or more times ourselves. You'll find a summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 146. Please enjoy learning how to find insights for your next product. Brian, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Chad, thanks for having me. So we met uh, just a few weeks ago. We were at this uh, Longmont Startup Week. And Longmont, Colorado is not a place I had really spent much time in before. Uh, we, we had a mutual friend ask us to go be on a panel there and, and speak, and that was great fun. And one thing I thought was so interesting was this is a, a city effort, right? The, the whole town gets behind doing this startup week. And every all week long, every hour, there's some some new speaker or panel talking about something in downtown Longmont. And they just take over, you know, businesses volunteer their space to, for the groups to come meet in for an hour and uh, all day long, you can go to different topics, which was great fun. And what, what did you think about that since I brought it up? Well, so I have spoken at, I think all of the startup weeks minus the last year or so in Boulder. And I believe startup week started in Boulder. Hmm. Uh, and a couple of years ago, they sold the rights to all the other startup weeks minus Boulder to chase. Um, so chase Manhattan bank is, is now leading an effort here and helping communities to put together these startup uh, weeks. And it is, like you said. So, you know, in, in, a, in a smaller community like the Longmont, uh, which is just 15 miles outside of Boulder and about 30 or 40 miles outside of Denver, there it, it's great because there's this burgeoning community of entrepreneurism. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a growing city. And they kind of cover the topics on technology and other th- and other things too. I saw some restaurant, uh, you know, groups get together and things like that. And so I think it's wonderful for the community. And in, in a place as small as Longmont, it really does feel like the whole town is part of the event. 
Longmont has this very historic downtown kind of feel like, you know, Main Street, small town in America. And it's in the middle of a technology center, right, with Boulder and Fort Collins and Denver close by. A lot lot of high tech, a lot of entrepreneurial spirit there. And I got to meet you and I thought it'd be good for us to follow up because you're doing some interesting work. So why don't you start with that and share the the kind of products that you've been involved with? Sure. So, you know, we call ourselves product designers and the kind of the three verticals that we're in are digital product, which includes web app and enterprise software or business software, uh, consumer packaged goods. So toys, outdoor products, you know, things that you can hold in your hand and consumer electronics, which in some people's minds is a subset of CPG consumer packaged goods. Uh, but we've had great success with consumer electronics. And of course we live in an electronic age. Um, and so those, and, and there's just a lot of, lot of room to, to work on phones and telephone televisions and smart home equipment, IOT. Uh, that's really uh, a fun, fun field to be in. And one that's rapidly evolving. So and those three areas give you lots of wide experiences about satisfying customers and creating value for them. Right. And so we've been doing the CPG and, and consumer electronics for about 17, 16 or 17 years. That, But it's the same methodology we use in digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, which to some people sounds a little bit odd because how can you use the same methodology for design in one, in two kind of disparate uh, fields or three disparate fields? And surprisingly enough, it, it is very applicable right. across the board. And and people, you know, when you start studying behavior and emotion, people are very very constant and. That's stuff we can use, all that data we can use. We collect data in the same way, regardless of the vertical we're working in. And I just want to underscore a thought there. So there, there's a couple of meetups that are really valuable that I go to up in our Denver area. They meet in Boulder some of the time, too. Colorado Product is one for product managers. And Product Tank, uh, which is an international organization, has another meetup there. A lot of these product management meetups lately, and this is a bit off topic, but I want to share it real quick with listeners. So stay with me, everyday innovators. A lot of these meetups lately are focused so much on digital products. And I, I tell these groups when I attend them that, hey, we're missing out by not having, not encouraging other industries, other sectors to also join. Because when we get people from, um, you know, consumer goods, from, you know, building products, from, from just a wide variety of fields, it's not that what we do is different, really. We, we figure that out. But we we can enrich what we do in our area just by hearing how people apply the ideas in the other areas. Well, I, and I appreciate you sharing that, that you've, you have found it transfers over really well what you've done on like consumer products, consumer goods, into digital as well. We're all trying to sell stuff, right? Yeah, and, and create value for customers. And create value. And that value is is across the board. If I'm buying a hammer... Uh, I, you know, a hammer has to be designed mm-hmm. just like a digital product does. There's, and what's interesting about this day and age and right now in time, mid 2017, is that we're seeing the merger of software and hardware. Mm-hmm. And we call that connected device right now. But your cell phone doesn't work without the Wi Fi chipset, right. without the, you know, cellular chipset. And it also doesn't work if you can't use it. And that's all about UI, UX, and software. Yep. Um, so that merger is happening and is getting uh, closer and closer and more integrated every day. 
Yep. And I want to focus with you on this, you know, the value aspect, the the people part of the equation here when it comes to product design. I've heard you say in the past that the most important aspect of product design and development, you know, this topic of building a better product uh, is people. Tell us about what, what people are you talking about there? Yeah, that is the end customer. Right. And the end customer changes for every uh, client we work with. And of course, my end customer is my client. Uh, but who we really want to study are the people who make the purchase or or act as users, uh, especially in digital product where we just need people to show up. And that's that's the sales or value proposition. Uh, so what we do is is we study that end user, the person who pays all of our bills. And there's absolute gold in studying the end customer beyond the standard fare of study. And what I mean by that is when you take this anthropological perspective, you get the behaviors and emotions uh, as data. And that data can then drive design decisions uh, and help you to kind of coalesce the idea of what people want. So we're no longer guessing about what people want. If we collect data correctly, we know what people want, and that's the real value of the methodology that we follow, which is, you know, basically called design thinking. Okay, so we've heard a lot about design thinking, and the <clears throat> IDEO started this arguably, you know, again back in the '80s when all great things happened. The uh, yeah, you can tell I'm a child of the '80s, but it's really picked up a lot of momentum in just the last few years. You know, especially with the Stanford's Design School, seeing so many resources available for design thinking now. So I want to dive into that with you too. This people aspect, there are a lot of big concepts that you shared there just a moment ago, you know, understanding the behavior of people. Because as product managers, I think we would all agree that like, okay, this is a no-brainer. We, we know we have to care about the customer. Interestingly enough, I talk with lots of product managers and I know organizations that have little to no customer interaction. So even though we know we're supposed to you know, care about the customer, that doesn't always mean that we have insights into our actual customer. We might be getting the ideas from, you know, somewhere else, uh, you know, um, through a third party and an intermediary uh, in the organization or just, you know, what R&D is putting out or something. This happens a lot. When it comes to some of those terms you threw out, like, uh, you know, anthropologically understanding our customer, let's dive into that. H- how do we really know what our customers want so we're not guessing? Yeah, I think that, it's a lot easier to look stuff up on, on the internet than it is to actually go out and discover what your customer wants. And in the end, it's quite a bit cheaper as well. Now, not so cheap. I mean, how how expensive is it to build a product that fails? That's very, right. very expensive. Yeah. So, I think the use of your word cheap there is really descriptive, right? Because cheap has the connotation of being low quality and, and not really worthwhile. And we can cheapen our, take the cheap route which to research, which might be, yeah, let, let's go find something on the internet that tells us about our customer without having the personal insights. And we end up with a product that no one really cares about. Yeah, that happens constantly. And it's kind of a shame because and then the next step that people do, and, and, and this is less cheap, but still not, doesn't have a great efficacy rating, are focus groups online or in-person surveys, uh, customer feedback tools like Zendeck, uh, Zendesk or user voice, all of these are used in conjunction with that online research, and we end up with a product that nobody wants or no one buys. And that's because, 
again, the efficacy is just very low for those. You know, Zendesk and User Voice, for example, on the online world or in the software world, really, they only attract one-tenth of one percent of users who make comments. And it's, hmm. it's, pretty, it's pretty good if you have, you know, if you're looking for mechanical things that are wrong with your software, like how many times you have to hit the tab key or... How many times the mouse has to travel across an entire screen on a desktop platform or something like that. But otherwise, I don't, you know, I haven't filled out a user voice or Zendesk ticket in quite some time. Maybe I do once a year. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to base your, your entire product development cycle on that once a year, you know, mentioned from one tenth of one percent of your users. Right. I've also find that I did not know this one tenth of one percent uh, statistic, which is interesting. Well, it's actually less. So I say that to kind of illustrate. <laughs> so that's on the high the side. <laughs> that's on the high side, right? Um, right. So if you're if, if you're a, a large property, uh, you know, uh, a large e-commerce site, we sometimes work with large e-commerce sites who have, you know, more than a million users a month and that are shopping, and those folks. They end up with, you know, a couple 10,000, you know, responses on their websites and support mm-hmm. stuff. And they only need a couple people to manage all of that. And then if they start building features into their software or into their web e-commerce design, and if they build those features on those 10,000 users, you're talking about a very small percentage that's kind of driving your product development. Yeah. And that can be very dangerous. And I also find it's likely a, a sub-segment that we could probably group, you know, formal segmentation uh, ideas around that may not be representative of your target market because the people, we do, right? yeah, the, we the people who tend to want to respond to those surveys are a group of themselves, right? That's a, a sub-segment of your target market. Right. And we'll talk about bias a little bit, but the bias to the person who gives feedback is uh, very different than a person that you're soliciting feedback from. Mm-hmm. But to get into the this anthropological uh, question, and this is what we've kind of discovered, is that when we go out and talk with people and observe people, we do the observation first, and then we do the interactive or talking to the uh, folks. The, the value there is really gold, because now we're talking to real individuals. And when, we, when we're just collecting data, that data has such a great impact on defining patterns. And so we're looking for patterns in use. You know, I just mentioned a mouse going across the screen for a digital product. And that's something that would be captured also if we were just watching people use a piece of software. You know, whereas the, I can't get over how many apps have the, uh, the set button, like alarm clock apps and all these kind of things have the set or the set button right next to the off button or the home button on Android and on the iPhone. And that, to me, is hilarious. Why mm-hmm. would you put a button there? Because if you're setting an alarm for the morning and you accidentally, with your glasses off, and three seconds before you're hopping into bed, you hit off, now you have no alarm. Right. And that's just not thinking clearly, right? So that those kind of things we notice in that behavioral study of human beings. And that helps us to define the patterns that lead to the great design. And I want to dive into more about what that looks like, this behavioral study. A uh, thought that came to mind as you were discussing that is we live in an era now, especially for digital products, but it, it seems to be across the board for many products, 
that the emphasis has been put on data-driven decisions. And, you know, and we're going to make our decisions based on what the data tells us, which is why we have these online tools, which have their utility for sure, like user voice and the like. But I, I, I see common sense missing from the equation too often, like you, what you just shared about the off button, right? And the emphasis on it being data-driven, we sometimes don't look at what should be obvious. And maybe that's because we've stepped it back from being close to the actual behavior of the customer, so help us get reconnected with this. How do we actually do that? You mentioned, you know, you do observations first and then interaction. Break the, down that details a little bit more for us. What are you doing in an observation? Well, this data doesn't usually entail talking to the end customer at all. So we are simply observing. And you can observe pretty much anything, you know, uh, and it's eye-opening when you start to do this. Uh we did a, uh, a backpack recently, for example, and we, we went to our local university here in Boulder, Colorado, and watched students interact with their backpacks. We never talked to the students. We never uh, asked them why they did certain things. We just wrote down what they were doing. And, and tell us about the setting of that. Are you just, you know, like out in the courtyard? So it looks like we're sketching. So I was sitting... So. I went on the first the first uh, research trip, and we I think we had three or four researchers on that project, including me. So I guess four, and I just sat, you know, with my back against a tree, and it looked like I was sketching, but I was writing furiously about what I was watching students do with their backpacks. Hmm. So woman sets backpack on ground, backpack tips over. Woman has to tip backpack up to get into the front pocket. That when you see that several times in a row, woman has to lift backpack up to get into front pocket. You realize that if backpacks stood straight up when you set them down, it might be more pleasing to the customer. Mm -hmm. So you collect these patterns. You know, the idea of how much something weighs, we were guessing on that. And it's interesting to me that here we are in 2017 and students' backpacks still weigh 20 pounds. (laughs) I don't know what's in there now. Uh, well, I do it. It's books and computers, but right. it, they've always been these overweighted things, you know? It's and, terrible. My, my poor daughter, last year when she was only 14, she weighed her backpack to go off to, uh, we homeschool, but she was she had a, a one-day-a-week school program that she was part of, too. 28 pounds of all the stuff she wanted to yeah, take. I'm like, it's amazing. no, you can't do that. You're not going to be able to walk when you're 20 if you do that. <laughs> Well, and the other thing that's interesting is we're back to two straps. So when right. you and I were in college, we were one strap backpack. That was the cool thing. That was the cool thing. I still have but shoulder it, issues because of it. <laughs> yeah. So one of the interesting things about this particular contract was, and, and client was that this client had hired five of the leading editors of outdoor magazines and uh, I think men's fitness that editor to redesign their backpack. Mm-hmm. And then they called us and said, hey, these guys came back with a very technical, professional use design. This is the largest selling backpack in the world. Can you validate this design for us? And so we started that project by going out and watching people just interact with their backpacks. Mm-hmm. It sounds ridiculous, but we we realized all of a sudden that there are all these things that we can discover, all these patterns that are that exist with these backpacks. Now, weight is a big deal. So... They were already double-stitching the right-hand uh, shoulder strap on this backpack. But that was 
that accounted for 80,000 returns in the year before because that strap broke. Hmm. And we watched how students put backpacks on. And there's this swaying motion with almost every student. So you're swaying 30 pounds away from your body and then up to the back. This is exactly the opposite of how a professional outdoor person puts on a backpack. They lift it up from the center strap that holds, you know, at the top of the backpack. They set it on their knee and they ease their body into the pack. Mm-hmm. which is exactly opposite of what students do. And that knowledge helped them to realize that if we want to keep selling to students, we have to quad stitch that right-hand shoulder strap. And so that's what they did. Uh, and we did add some technical things. We also discovered that men love pockets. Women love open spaces. Uh, nooks and crannies are important to, to men and to women. They're not quite as important, which was eye-opening to me as, you know, uh, uh, women I know usually carry these cavernous purses, and that's kind of what they like. Mm-hmm. They like these cavernous spaces, and men don't. They want nooks and crannies and right. pockets, which is very, very different. It, that's reflective of my wife and I, at least. You know, I, I like to have a place for everything in my backpack, yeah. and she yeah. she chooses the purses that we, we've looked at the ones that I like right for her. Like, oh, this one is great; it has a place for all your little things. Like, I just want a big, big open area. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and. But that knowledge is very, we can take that knowledge straight to design. So right. we, can, we can make a backpack with a lot of pockets, market it to men uh, who are students or not students. And we can make one that has a few less pockets and bells and whistles and, and sell it to female students or women. Mm-hmm. And that, that works great. They're actually doing that now. And they have a couple separate lines because of that discovery. Yeah. And they had never broken it down that way before. And this was all without talking to a soul. Right. This was all about going out in the field and looking like I'm sketching, you know, a quad, we call it, uh, at Folsom Field at uh, University of Colorado and just watching students interact with their backpacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nike does this as well. The, the last Olympic uniforms were, were done, also was done in Boulder. And I ran into the team while they were here and they spent... Uh, I think it was two and a half months every morning going to this, this one spot in Boulder where a lot of international runners train huh. in March, in March and April. And they train here because of the altitude. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really, it's really good for foreign teams, uh, who don't have altitude or, or spaces to, and it's a friendly community and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they never talked to a single athlete. They just sat in their cars and watched the athletes interact with their clothing. And they came up with the Olympic Union. Uh, for the American team and a couple other teams as well. Right. For everyday innovators listening that haven't have no experience with this, where that might sound maybe either magical or like these people have really unique skills, I just want to reassure them that the sort of thing, just like you did, I mean, you're you're a trained anthropologist and know how to do ethnography research, but anyone could sit down in that, you know, at Folsom Field and, and start just jotting down observations. And over time, you very quickly see repeated actions, and it just makes you go, huh, I wonder what's going on with that, right? And you start picking up patterns that you see, and it will give you insights about how you can better serve this group of people. Well, if you have no money, and you can't afford us or another you know, design firm that does this sort of thing, then I would suggest doing exactly that. Going out, bring, get yourself a nice notebook. A nice notebook helps. I don't know why. You can't take notes by digital. It mm. doesn't work. Right. Unless you're drawing on a tablet uh, with a stylus. 
So the cognitive load of human beings typing things in disallows us from writing completely what we see mm-hmm. in the field. And so, and that's a very real thing. And, and, and we've tried it both ways several times and we always end up at paper and pencil or pen. Yeah. So you're actually writing and sketching. Right. And it's fun because you can, now it gets boring after you do it for a couple of days <laughs> and then you're just looking for the patterns, but you want to write down everything. Just like I said, those were kind of real quotes for things that I wrote down. Woman sets backpack mm-hmm. on the ground, woman backpack tips over, woman writes backpack to get to front pocket. When you see that pattern then 10 times, you know that it's nice to have a backpack that stands on its own. That's all. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. once you see that pattern repeated, and you don't want to just use Folsom Field in Colorado. You might want to go to a color, a couple other places and see if people have that same problem. Sure. Uh, so we, this was a very small, uh, this is a micro study, I, I guess it was. So, but that behavioral research is not difficult to do. There are a lot of, I think if you type in ethnography on Amazon, you'll get a thousand books. Mm-hmm. And I don't recommend any of them in particular, but uh, I do suggest just buying one. And then kind of developing your own system from there. If you can get past this thing of digital and just use paper and pen, that's a huge hurdle. Right. And then if you can just go out there and watch without interacting, that's another great uh, hurdle to get over. You know, we ha- we see from uh, we work with uh, some textiles companies in, in Boomtown Boulder here in Boulder, Colorado, and the when entrepreneurs go out, they always want to be interactive with potential customers. And we say, no, don't, don't, don't be interactive. And then if they insist, we say, well, how are you being interactive? And they say, hey, I'm Brian. I've got this startup company. What do you think about my product? <laughs> they show them an app or they show right. them a widget or electronic device, whatever. Now, who's going to tell somebody who just announced they're an entrepreneur that their product sucks? Exactly. You know, th- there are some you know? civilities here. And asking, this is the mom question, right? It doesn't matter, matter yeah. if you're asking your mom or a stranger. We tend to give favorable responses. Right. And so that idea of biasing your your research is very, very poor. And mm-hmm. this is, I think, why so many startups fail. Right. You know, if they spent more time doing real research, they wouldn't have this problem. Uh, and they don't. And it's it's kind of funny. I, I started a talk. I gave it uh, uh some startup meetup last November and I opened the talk by saying something like, you know, I've had uh, 85 clients in the last couple of years and we have never failed. Uh, we have never not brought great insight and great design to the products we've worked on. And mm-hmm. yet there are about 85 people in this room and pretty much all of you are going to be out of business in so why is that? What do we do differently? The only thing we do differently is this study of the human animal. Hmm. And that the study of the human animal is so powerful that skipping it or asking your mom or you're in a startup weekend or something and you ask other, other entrepreneurs, uh, your local community, all of those are great and you can get good insights out of those. But not going deep early is kind of right. the the real failure of, of startups, I think across the planet, because I've been involved with startups in China and the Middle East. And mm-hmm. all that, and everybody kind of does it. They, yeah. they have a great product and they, they just go for it. And obviously not just startups, but anyone working on a new product concept or trying to make a product better, this fits for. And I'm a huge fan of the same approach. Uh, ethnography is 
a way to get insights that you really can't discover other ways, except maybe if you're lucky a lot of the time. You said this begins with observation and then interaction. Tell us about that transition and what kind of interaction. Well, so, and you spent some time discussing the patterns and finding those patterns. And so after we observe people, uh, it's like, let's just stay with the backpack metaphor. And we can observe people and see how they're treating their backpacks, how they're interacting with their backpacks. And then we go back to the office and we transcribe our notes and we, we find these patterns and then we put together a set of questions. Now, the best interview is an interview that's very safe for the customer and safe for the researcher, obviously. Uh, so there's, you know, I don't use very beautiful people to do interview questions because I don't want their, their good looks to influence uh, um, the person they're talking to. We did a, uh, we asked a couple of questions to some people in fitness clubs and you couldn't have a pretty woman ask men in a fitness club serious questions and, and get, and get good responses. And conversely, you couldn't have men ask women anything at all in a fitness club because women have their guard up in a fitness club. Uh-huh. And they don't, and they, you know, they don't want to be hit on in a fitness club. Right. So if you approach them as a man, they all of a sudden develop a bias. And so, but that interaction with people has to be very well defined before you go out. Uh, so defining the patterns and then defining how you're going to ask questions. We once spent over a hundred man hours putting together eight questions, which is really too many. Uh, we had four that you know all had a follow on. The we spent 100 man hours coming up with the, the right language and the right way to ask these questions of these people that we were talking to in the home improvement space. And then we did it in Spanish. And it was so in both, in both languages, it was, it was interesting in how we asked those questions, how we put those questions together. So the best way to do it is to have two questions. And you'd be surprised how much information you can get with two questions. Okay. Let's just not bother anybody and let's give them a little reward for talking with us. So you'll often see me at a Starbucks uh, on uh, Polk Street in San Francisco or the Starbucks here in Pearl Street in Boulder. And I'll have a little sign, five bucks, five minutes, test my app. And really what I'm doing is buying people a latte. And if they answer one or two questions before they walk into the Starbucks. And people love this and they're happy to answer what they don't want to stand there for 60 seconds, but for 20 seconds, they'll give you a very real and good answer. Mm-hmm. And if I have targeted questions for them, then those answers are very usable in, in design. And so what we're doing is we're just ascribing an emotion to behavior. So the behavior of swinging my backpack over my shoulder, why do I do it that way? Why don't you put it on? Cause they don't care about the they didn't buy the backpack. They've got no investment in the backpack. They love it in one regard in that it carries their stuff and they kind of, they think they look cool. It's sort of a fashion statement. Uh-huh. But in the end, they can get another one with their mother or father's credit card in 20 minutes because they're sold in four places all around CU Boulder. Right. And so that's an interesting dynamic. And so when we go into them with questions, and I don't remember exactly which questions. Or I guess the questions with the backpack were something about swinging it or how much how much stuff do you have in there and those kind of things. And those helped us to decide that hey, kids really do put a lot of stuff in their backpack still, even when they don't need it. And they really have a disregard for the uh, for taking care or you know kind of 
taking care of the backpacks. They have a disregard there. And that went into the design. That went into making it bulletproof for those students. Mm-hmm. And But finding those emotional uh, components built on behavioral patterns are super important. And we can see this surrounding us all day. So there are about 125, almost a quarter of the fortune companies now are doing design thinking in one way or another. So a lot of products we see are very thoughtful and very uh, well put together. You know, the classic example is the iPhone, but I would say, you know, we're in the week where they just introduced the Galaxy Note 8. Right. What a thoughtful device. I mean, it's stunningly beautiful. Has a great aesthetic quality. It's also very, very functional. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you discover the emotions, now you know how to speak to your customers as well. And this is a really big deal, knowing how to speak to your customers. So one of the byproducts of great people research or ethnography is your customer's language, for example, or their emotions around the product. And this is why iPhone users have no idea that Android's a couple of years ahead in technology. Right. Right? They don't care. It doesn't matter. The iPhone is sold as a as a lifestyle tool. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sold as a as a sense of self. And it because you use it in social so often, it does become part of self. And Apple knows this very well. And they've known this with all their products. And that's really a cool thing to understand because now you can speak to your customers in a way that other companies can't. You're using their language. So Apple's commercials, which are usually have people ha- either doing creative work mm-hmm. or being together. Yeah, they show because experiences. They show experiences, and the iPhone is a part of that experience, and right. that's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, other cell phone companies, HTC and, and a lot of the Chinese manufacturers, are concentrating on specs. And who cares how fast the chip is or how fast the camera is? Does it take a great selfie of myself and my girlfriend right. or my child? And when I go to Niagara Falls, does it allow me to do slow motion? Uh, this is what this is what really counts, right? These mm-hmm. experiences. And that's why I think this is called experience design. Again, Apple's the king of that. Uh, you won't see Samsung offering the specs up now, though, either. They're also in this lifestyle thing. Mm-hmm. A slightly different message. Well, well, we figured out it makes a difference. And I, I think this is right. another key advantage that you're highlighting of doing the observation work before the interactions is that we get insights into how the customer actually thinks about it. And when we do the interactions, we get their actual language that they use. Sometimes this is where, as product managers, we don't make a good connection back to the marketing department. Um, and we, we, we need to go out of our way to make sure that happens, that we bring them this language, the language of the customer, so that marketing, when they're doing marketing communications, that they can use that actual language of the customer and more closely connect to them. Yeah, one of the ancillary things that we include with every every you know final report is the marketing language document. Mm-hmm. And that's just using uh, the language of your customers to speak to your customers. We did a interesting uh, engagement last year, last fall, where we studied the market of influencers, uh, their, their relationship to brands. So people who write reviews on Amazon or do YouTube videos, who those people are, that kind of thing. And there are several players in this space, and we were working for one of the larger ones. But it was interesting because on the websites, when they're trying to convince influencers to be a part of their system or become a member of their organization, 
they call them influencers, except influencers don't call themselves influencers, right? right? They call themselves YouTubers, Instagrammers, and Snapchatters. And I think that's really interesting. So as soon as we change that language, that marketing language, when we said, YouTubers, come, come, come work with us. Right. Uh, the, the spike in, in, uh, in users just, just skyrocketed. That, you know, they got a lot more inbound calls just because they were using the language their customers were using. Mm-hmm. That's really important. We need to do the same thing in our products because that's how customers self-identify, right? It's, you know, you're, you're the YouTuber went, oh, that's me. Right? We, yeah. we self-identify when we see the language that we use that we would use ourselves. Yeah, and it's great fun, too. If I, I mean, on September 14th, when the Galaxy Note comes out, I'm going to go to one of my favorite upper-end bars here in Boulder the day it comes out, and I just want to see how many men have that phone on the bar. Hmm. Because they will put that phone on the bar, and these will be guys who are coders, probably. They'll be in the high-tech field, and they will have just spent $1,000 on a Galaxy Note 8 by Samsung, and they are going to advertise. Right. And... That's part, that is wonderful for me to see. Uh, the same thing happens. I do it every year when the new iPhones come out too. And it's just kind of fun to watch how people react to this product. They don't even know how to use this thing yet. Right. But they're, <laughs> they're going to show the world that they identify with this piece of equipment. And that's really cool. And we don't, I don't mean to keep this conversation stuck on hardware. We can do the same for software. Sure. And software is, there's, there's still, and I'm, I've been in software for 23 years. I think I'm one of the, one of the oldest guys now. So that's been doing it continuously, uh, online at least, uh, since it started and since the internet or World Wide Web was born. And it's kind of fun to watch how much progress we've made as opposed to how little and how we don't really use UX best practices in a lot of software, despite every great effort to try. And we can go in and, and see where those kind of screw ups are just by the behavioral stuff and then discover whether there's an emotional impact. Mm-hmm. You know, we did one study several years ago on why people wouldn't switch from a PC to a Mac. And it had nothing to do with the Macintosh. It had nothing to do with the Apple computer. But all they, they, they were continually reminded of their pain with the PCs with all the alerts you get on a PC and, you know, hey, is your software updated and this thing's broken and whatever. And you get interrupted by a PC as you work. When we did the study, it was uh, four or five times an hour. And with a Mac, it was it was never. And so that was a big... But that pain of remembering how long it took you to learn one operating system changed you or, or kept you away from ever learning. Hmm. And it was interesting that that was something... And Apple used that. Apple used that that knowledge to say, listen, you just take it out of the box and you plug it into the wall, plug it into an Ethernet cable, and you're online. You don't have to do anything mm-hmm. else. That was so they knew that very well and then and then uh, manipulated that knowledge into great marketing. Really good discussion, and I'm really glad we're bringing this idea of do observations first, then interactions, and how the, how simple this can be to approach. And value there for everyday innovators listening, and we can get deeper insights into our customers, and that leads to better insights into designing products. And as listeners know, I love innovation quotes, and I always always ask for guests to bring one. Uh, what do you have for us, and why did you choose that one? Yeah, I didn't have one, and I didn't. I, I don't know why I didn't have one. I've been 
designing products for over 20 years and I have no, in, I have no inspirational quotes. I, I was a little flummoxed when you sent me that email a couple of day, days ago and said you were going to ask this question. And so I started looking and I spent a good 90 minutes. You put thought into this for us. I did. And I don't know uh, what drove me or why. I think it's just because I don't have a quote. I realized that I needed a quote that was concentrated on design. And it had to be from someone who had a profound impact on the world. Hmm. And number one, uh, it had to be someone who's not no longer alive. And I, I do that just because we don't know how things are going to turn out for those of us who are still living. And also, it adds gravity to the quote mm-hmm. if they're if they're gone. Uh, and someone who I could admire okay. or, or have heard of before. And so these are those are kind of my three criteria. And it took me about ninety minutes to find one, but I chose one from Tom Watson, who was the first CEO of IBM. Okay. And he, you know, he lived in the early. I mean, he was the CEO during World War One and World War Two of IBM. He came up with one of the most brilliant uh, slogans of all time, which was just simply "think," just the word "think," and that was really cool. So, if you went into the IBM offices, even as late as the uh, early two thousands. You could see Think everywhere, hmm. right? And so it's called the Think Pad when they came out with their laptop, right? Think is all over the place. But that's not a quote. That's a slogan. His quote, though, is this. Design must reflect the practical and aesthetic in business. But above all, good design must primarily serve people. And I love that. I love that because it says people right, they, right in there. And that's what we do is we study people to come up with great design. But we're not forgetting the business goals here. Right. So, Mr. Mr. Watson, it's got to serve business. So, my clients, the first thing we do in an engagement is we go in and get their business goals. And then we, we look for this little, we call it the discovery moment of what they really want. And so, they've all got a goal of making more money or making a product uh, look better or feel better or have make it more practical. Uh, they want more users, more customers, any, you know, all of those kind of things. But then what do they really want? Where do they want to see themselves as a company in five years? That's what we're after. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we hear that, that phrase, we stop them and go, okay, great. Let's build on that. And then we spend an hour doing that. And, uh, that's, that's something that, that Mr. Watson is talking about here. We have to, we have to consider the user in right. the end. Mm-hmm. We have to consider the business at the, at the front end. And I just love that idea as a quote. I hope that's a good one. It's a very good quote. And it reflects this notion of what we do as product managers is create value for our organization and create value for the customer. And we need, we need those two pieces. And before we, before we end, I, I, I just want to say to the, to the product managers that are out there, I think that the, I think that we're falling into a place where the product managers are going to be that user champion, that end customer champion. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we're necessarily very well prepared for that as product managers. And I don't think we teach that very well in product management, you know, uh, certification programs and schools. But I think that's where it's going to end out. I've been watching this kind of evolve in digital and now consumer electronics and CPG. And I see the product manager as being the one person who stands up and says, wait a second, my persona called Susie wouldn't like this. Or my persona called Jim would really love this, and I think that I think they're they are going to be the torchbearers for the customer experience um, moving forward. And I think 
And I just wanted to get that out there so that, that, that product managers can kind of prepare themselves for that and see that their role goes well beyond driving the team, right? Uh-huh. And well beyond getting things done. I think that they're also the guardians of great product. And that, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And I, and I would love to see them, you know, uh, understand a little bit further how we study people to kind of design great things. Yeah. And, um, so that's why I agreed to do this podcast and I'm very excited that you have the audience that you do. So I thank you very much for, for your time and efforts. Absolutely. And I appreciate you emphasizing that need for product managers to be the champion of, of the user experience. And that's, that's a big part of building great products. Yeah. It has to deliver value and successful products will deliver more value than the other options the, the customer has. So that's what we're after. Yeah. This has been great. Really good information shared. Please tell listeners also how they can find out about your company, your work, anything else you'd like to leave us with. Well, as all uh, long-term designers, I haven't updated my website in about years. <laughs> You're welcome to go to firstusergroup.com and uh, check us out. We have a couple case studies up there. It's fairly, fairly light content. We do get a lot of uh, business by word of mouth, obviously. And the... We, we unfortunately can't help uh, people with an idea. Uh, we can't help emerging companies that aren't funded very much. We do give our time, though, in Boulder and in San Francisco uh, at meetups and certainly at uh, hackathons and accelerators and that kind of stuff. So you can usually find us there. Uh, but certainly firstuser.com and my email address is just B, just the, the letter B at firstusergroup.com. So get in touch if you want some help. Brian, thanks so much for the information. Thanks, Chad. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. This was a valuable discussion with Brian, and there are many more to help you move from product manager to product master. You can find all of them at theeverydayinnovator.com. Also, please go to the same page and download the top 10 insights from the first 100 plus interviews. Again, that's at theeverydayinnovator.com. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.